Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from the David C. Barnett blog site where I talk about buying and selling businesses and managing small businesses and all kinds of other things that people might want to ask me about. Um, this past week, I got an email from Sarah Mullins, our friend who spoke to us about how HR issues can affect the value of a business during an acquisition. And uh, the email was basically about employment contracts and I thought it was an interesting topic. So I invited Sarah to come back. And uh, Sarah, how are things going? You've been uh, in your HR practice now for what, about a year? What's, what's going on with you? Yeah, it's been um, just over a year now and uh, things are going really, really well. Um, it's a big switch from the corporate world where, as you know, I was kind of tied up in a lot of mergers and acquisitions for about uh, two decades. Uh, so now I'm dealing with more so small businesses and uh, dealing more so with their uh, strategies and everything from, you know, from recruiting strategy to uh, their policies and, and performance management to terminating employees and everything in between. So it's been fun. It's a lot more variety. That's cool. So you kind of act like an outsourced HR department for companies that may be too small to have their own full-time professional HR person? I do. I have kind of two um, kind of buckets of, of clients, I guess you could say. Those small, almost kind of micro clients that may only have a couple of employees and just need some help with some small projects like some policy development and such. And then I have another bucket of, uh, of clients that um, have me on a retainer. So I may even have office hours with them where I'm in there actually building relationships with their employees and um, helping them out on a more long-term basis, providing ongoing support. Cool, cool. Yeah. So your email was about um, employment contracts. And I, I've worked for some pretty large organizations before, and I've worked for some small mom and pop companies as well. And what I've found is that large organizations always at the hiring process tend to put something in front of me um, to that I have to agree to that just outlines the basics, like you said in your email about, you know, weeks of vacation and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But very rarely have I seen it in small mom and pop businesses. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what kind of company should be using an employment contract and, and what kind of document is it that, uh, that they need to look at. Well, really, anybody who's hiring either employees or even contractors should have some sort of employment agreement in place. Now, the complexity of those agreements will depend on the size of the business and what type of employment you're looking at. But uh, it could be a simple offer letter or it could be a multi-page uh, type document. But you want to do this for, for really two reasons. One is to set very clear expectations so there's no misunderstandings down the road. Um, you know, so you hire this person and six months from now they say, oh, Joe, you promised me an increase at six months and you can go back to the employment contract and say, say no, you know, I promised you that we'd review your wage at six months, not necessarily an increase. So just to make sure that there's none of those types of misunderstandings. And secondly, um, you know, all employment relationships are going to come to an end at some point, unfortunately. And what you can do with an employment contract is ensure that you reduce your liability during the exit period. Uh, so there's very specific clauses that you can put in place that um, limit your, your liability from a uh, dismissal perspective, as well as protect your business uh, from the employee exiting the organization. Whoops. If someone's going to let someone go, let's say, um, what, what is the obligation typically for most small businesses with respect to um, severance? 
Well, it really depends. Again, if you have the, the appropriate contract in place, it can be very minimal. It can be just basically what labor standards re requires, which could just be a couple of weeks. If you have nothing in that employment contract to begin with, you could be liable up to a month per year of employment, uh, depending on the wrongful dismissal case and what type of judge you get. Wow. Okay. So, so the liability could be huge if it's not spelled. And, and what you're saying is that you can control that liability by kind of the spelling things out in the beginning in an employment contract. Absolutely. Yes. So most of the people who are watching my channel, they have an interest in either buying or selling a business. Can you talk a little bit about how employment contracts can be important if someone is selling a business and then maybe how they are important for someone who might be buying a business? Sure, sure. And it's really going to depend um, on the type of purchase that you're talking about. Uh, so they're really important on both ends. But if you're looking at, say, um, an asset purchase, um, that can be really important because it's a good opportunity to spell out what the new terms of the agreement are going to be, because it may be different than, than in their previous world. So you're going to have a new effective date, you're going to spell out um, what they're going to be receiving, um, and that sort of thing. It's also a good point um, during an asset purchase for the seller and the purchaser to discuss who's going to be liable for those previous years of service. Um, right. Now, and this is because in an asset sale, technically what's happening is the seller is terminating the employees and the buyer is engaging them anew, right? It can be. It, again, it depends on what you negotiate during that. That is an option with the asset purchase rather than the share purchase. Um, so, so that is something that you're going to want to discuss. So is that, is the seller going to pay off those employees? Um, or is that liability going to carry over or is it going to be a combination of the two? And so in the deals that I've been involved with Sarah, what typically happens is the employees, even if it's an asset deal are offered a job with the, with the buyer. And typically those people say, yeah, you know, I want to continue to receive a paycheck. And typically the offers are under the same terms and conditions as they used to work under anyway. So okay. people are informed of the transaction. They're given these job packages where they can basically sign on under the same terms and conditions. And pretty much everyone simply does. And then they carry on. So are there cases where people might say, no, I don't want to. And, and would that instance create a problem for the seller, for example? Absolutely. That could definitely be the case. Um, you also run into uh, the scenario there when they automatically sign on, the purchaser is taking on that liability. So if you have a 20-year employee, um, then you're taking on those years of service. And keep in mind that in some provinces, like Nova Scotia, uh, that person can be difficult. It could be difficult to get rid of that person if they're not a good match with your organization um, because of their years of service. And so is, in your experience, typically these rules can vary by jurisdiction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when, in an asset sale in Nova Scotia, what you're saying is that uh, newly hired employees by the buyer may not necessarily be under, for example, a 90-day probationary period at that point. Oh, absolutely not. No. Okay. If, if, if um, it, it really, again, it's going to depend on how you set up the purchase agreement as well as that employment contract and how that's going to look. Okay. So it sounds to me like uh, there could be some, some hazards here. Someone like yourself probably is very useful in making sure that people control, especially when you're talking maybe about employees who might be highly paid. Mm -hmm. um, there could be a lot of potential liability if things aren't handled right. If the employees don't seem eager to simply go along with the new, the new owner. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And with the years of service, so when you speak specifically to Nova Scotia, it's interesting because we have what um, I refer to as the 10-year rule, where after 10 years of employment, um, you cannot terminate that employee unless you have just cause or you're eliminating the position. So if you purchase a company and they have long-term employees, you could know a month in that they're just not going to be a fit with your organization. But if they've been there over 10 years, you can't do anything about it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's crazy. Uh, okay, I'm in New Brunswick, and I've never. I don't believe that we have rules like this. There's that I'm, rule does not exist in, exist in New Brunswick. No. Okay. Okay. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and and all the deals that I've ever worked on have been in New Brunswick, and and basically one of the big advantages that, that of reasons why people will do the asset sale is because effectively what happens in New Brunswick is all the employees are terminated and and they're done. Yeah. And then they take a new job with the new owner. And it creates this break in that continuity. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's one of the reasons why pe business people in particular like this kind of thing. And then even the seller, if they sell the business and move on and then there's a problem with an employee, well, they've already terminated the employee, so they're done with them. Okay. And and so it 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 can work out pretty smooth. Now, and now share sales, of course, whole different ball of wax because technically the employees are employed by the corporation. Yeah. And when the ownership of the corporation changes, then there's been no change at all no. to the, the employment history or, or what have you. So if somebody was planning on selling their company, what kinds of things do you think that they might want to do in their employment contracts to be able to facilitate that? Is there anything they can do to make it easier? Well, definitely having things like we talked about with that having a termination clause outlining um, what the, the the terms will be if, if the employment relationship ends um those types of things definitely help and would be more attractive to any purchaser um and, and just making sure that things are documented making sure the contracts first exist because a lot of times um in, in my acquisition world we were acquiring companies and these contracts didn't, just didn't exist and that's why even with a share purchase um we often uh, created employment contracts just to, so everyone has a clear understanding of what the current state is <laughs> um, right. because sometimes that was unclear um, and just to document that and have the um, the effective date of transition documented so a purchaser can can start or a seller sorry can start preparing their business like that having making sure that there are contracts in place and making sure that all the details are included and that the liability is reduced as much as possible so uh, earlier, I gave the example of how I've worked for some really small mom and pop businesses that didn't, you know, they weren't strong on paperwork, right? So it's basically, hey, come and join us. And, and now you're an employee and mm -hmm. nothing was put in front of me. So what kinds of, what, what are some of the worst things that can happen in that scenario? Um, well, as I said, it's just kind of people not knowing what's going on. People thinking, employees thinking that they're entitled to something that they're not. Um, there, I've seen mistakes simply in, in, in salaries. I've seen people who were paid the wrong salary, um, not what they originally agreed to. And if they did, weren't checking their, their pay stubs regularly, sometimes they just didn't notice. I had somebody who was paid the wrong salary for almost a year before they realized um, that it was the wrong number. Uh, so those types of errors and omissions can be avoided by having an employment contract. And again, on the flip side, that liability piece, making sure that you have um, you know, confidentiality agreements and non-solicitation agree agreements. In some areas, you can have a non-compete put in there, um, depending on how that non-compete is worded. Um, 
those are kind of tricky because sometimes they're not enforceable if they're too too restrictive. But that's mm -hmm. a whole other day. <laughs> and, uh, so, Sarah, I'm a big fan of, of written contracts in all areas of business because what some people will say is they'll say, look, what's the liability associated to having a, a dispute or a problem? And if they think the liability is rather low, then they'll think well, it's not worth our effort to get contracts and things in place. But what I always say is that if there's nothing in writing, it's very easy for people to get into this he said, she said kind of thing. If there's something in writing, two parties can usually work out a resolution because as soon as you end up engaging with a lawyer, then both parties just simply have lost because you're both going to end up spending tons of money to try to figure out you know, how to resolve whatever the problem is. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, once you get the lawyers involved, and that's why a lot of big companies, especially once an employee um, starts a dispute, it's just easier to to settle than this to go to court. Um, so that in itself can, can cost a fortune as well, but it's a lot less expensive than going to court with an employee. Um, plus, you got to think too of your reputation, right? Because once you, you end up with in court proceedings or even just going to the labor board um, with an employee, then you, um, you have that um, information that there is public. Okay. So Sarah, how simple or how difficult can it be to get something in place that is sort of the minimum of what you would recommend people have mm -hmm. when they're dealing with employment and employees? Well, I see a lot of uh, small businesses that just go online and they just kind of Google for um, an employment template or they go to these uh, download sites where they can uh, access templates and they're okay. They give you the very basics, but the issue is um, you don't know a lot about the business or they don't know a lot about the business that the folks that are providing those templates. So you don't get anything that's completely customized to your business or to your industry. And that doesn't mitigate the risk that you're looking at. So to have um, someone write something up for you that's, that's customized, that um, addresses your, your jurisdiction, so your province or your state and, and mm -hmm. the legislation uh, requirements in that area um, and, and is able to really mitigate your risk um, because there are so many different options uh, and how restrictive you want to be in this type of, uh, with these types of contracts. I see a lot of contracts out there that are either too light, meaning they're just like a little offer letter that have a couple of details that they probably have downloaded from one of these templates and some that are just crazy restrictive um, and just won't hold up in court which means that they're they're not worth the paper they're written on so um, to have an expert come in and it doesn't cost very much especially uh, if you go to a lawyer it's probably going to be a little bit more expensive if you go to an HR consultant who's done this for years um, they're going to be a little bit more economical in, in, in delivering that uh, contract to you yeah I know in in my experience with uh, in buying and selling businesses one of the things that would often come up is non-compete agreements between buyers and sellers mm -hmm. and to your point about something being too restrictive what several different lawyers had told me over the course of, of my years in doing deals is that um, buyers will sometimes put these overly restrictive non-compete agreements on the sellers. And if it can't be proven later that the non-compete agreement actually matched the scope of the business. So, you know, people would say, I don't want you to own a similar business in the province for the next five years. Well, if it was a, a business that actually did business around the province, that would be reasonable. But if it did business in one city, mm -hmm. then it could be fought in court saying that the original business didn't have a goodwill or a marketplace throughout the entire province. So this non-compete agreement, you know, 
didn't properly consider what was being transferred and so it's invalid. Yeah. And so as a, as a broker, what I would always have to do is try to say to these buyers is look, let's examine what the footprint is of this business, where do they do business, and we have to make sure that the non-compete actually relates to the enterprise being acquired. And I guess the same kinds of tests sort of apply in the world of employment, non-competes and things like that? Absolutely. Um, it's the exact same test. So if you are uh, hiring a salesperson, um, you cannot say that they cannot sell for any other company within your city, <laughs> right? Um, you can say that they can't go to the, the direct competition um, mm -hmm. for X amount of months. Five years would be way too restrictive. Um, mm -hmm. I like the anything that's less than a year even because um, that gets you over that time that they might be upset and try to steal your customers. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's a non-solicitation, which is a whole other um, can of worms, right? You can have um, non-solicitation without a non-compete and a non-solicitation would just be you will not come after our customers or our employees. Um, so, so there's those, there's a lot of different approaches that you can take, but yes, absolutely the same type of concept. All right. Well, Sarah, if there's anyone out there watching or listening that would like to get in touch with you to find out how you could help them, what's the best way to reach you? Just go through my website, uptreehr.ca, and uh, you can book a consult there. I offer three um, complimentary 30-minute uh, consults so we can uh, discuss what's going on and uh, go from there. Awesome, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. And um, of course, anyone out there who's interested in buying, selling, managing a small business should be going over to davidcbarnett.com where I've literally got like over 300 blog posts now. There's over 200 videos and uh, my audios, Sarah, have now been approved as an iTunes podcast. So oh, wow. anyone who likes to listen to audio while driving or whatever can find the David C. Barnett Small Business and Deal Making podcast now on iTunes, which I'm pretty excited about right now. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we'll talk to you later, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good day. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.